you could say, once bitten, twice shy. This is Prime Law Podcast, your source for good counsel. I'm your host, Andrew Mertzenich, licensed attorney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Prime Law Podcast. Before we get into the substance of today's episode, I wanted to share some very exciting news that we have for you. We are always looking for our interaction with our listeners, and that includes questions, comments, or even show ideas. So you can now reach Prime Law Podcast at our new phone number, 708-76-MYPOD. That's 708-76-MYPOD, and we look forward to hearing from you. Now, on with the show. My guest today is Tracy McGonigal, both a good friend and my colleague at Prime Law Group. Tracy is one of the leading voices in legal advocacy in the area of animal law. She has vast experience both in litigation and appellate work, and her past professional experience includes being Executive Director of the Hooved Animal Humane Society, or Haas, Director of Right Way Rescue in Morton Grove, and she is also a licensed and approved humane investigator for the state of Illinois. And it does not stop there. But I'm sure she feels that the greatest honor we can bestow upon her is that she is the very first guest appearance here on Prime Law Podcast. So, Tracy, welcome to the show. I sure do. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) It's quite the honor here. Thank you. Well, let's hop right into it. Tracy, you have had a career that I would describe as impactful. However, I'm wondering, can you define what exactly your area of practice is? You know, it's very broad. Basically, there are two arms or two aspects of it. There's the humane aspect, and those are the laws such as the Illinois Humane Care for Animals Act that uh, mandates basic owner's duties, um, defines cruelty, aggravated cruelty, certain things like that. It has a criminal arm to it and a civil arm to it as well. Um, And then there is the idea that animals are property in Illinois and a whole bunch of laws that actually apply to that. Interesting. So can you tell me briefly what you mean by animals are property? Well, under Illinois law, animals are considered property. So you have a dog, you have a cat, you have a horse. They're actually your property. So they're not a part of my family? No, I would say absolutely they're a member of your family. And I think most people feel that way too. But when you're dealing with the law, they're going to evaluate them as property. And a lot of people get very upset about that, but that's the way it is, actually. I'm curious, can you give us any context as to why we haven't moved towards like animal personhood or legal personhood so animals have rights? Well, I, I do in that... It takes a while for the law to catch up with um, societal norms and things like that. It's not always bad to consider animals property, though, because sometimes they come out on the good end of that, whereas other times it is upsetting or it can cause some grief problems for people. But if you think of animals as property in the case of divorce, you know, dissolution of marriage proceedings, they are part of marital property. And unless... 
you you perhaps acquired the animal before the marriage and you had a prenup or something like that. A prenup for Fido. It has happened. It has happened and it does happen. But so animals would be considered property when you divide up marital assets pursuant to dissolution of marriage. However, very recently we, we just talked about societal norms mm-hmm. and you know the laws catching up, the courts catching up. There is uh, there was an amendment in Illinois for the in the family law statute where when courts are considering where to put the animals, they look at the best interests of the animal. Oh, that is so interesting. Exactly. So family lawyers, you know, people who practice in family law, they would uh, be able to advocate for their client saying, hey, you know, my client would definitely be the best person. It would be in the best interest to have, you know, Rex or Grover or Fido because blah, 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 blah. Wow. That, that poses a question from me. Um, how did we do this before? Did we just say this is the value of the animal at the time and therefore one person should be entitled to it because they receive a share of the marital estate? How does that work? Those considerations come into play more if you are evaluating an animal um, that has been sadly killed in a veterinary malpractice or killed by someone you know, who, who may have, you know, I, I can't even think of who would do this. However, if your animal um, is killed by someone and you sue them civilly, that's where that analysis would come in. For the dissolution of marriage proceeding, courts are going to look at it more as um, who did the animal belong to? You know, they're not going to evaluate the value of the animal like that. In Illinois, when you place a value on animals, you can use heirloom value. So sometimes it's hard if you have a rescue pet, say you spent $500 or $200, something like that at the rescue, and then your animal is injured or your animal is killed. What are your damages? For that, okay, is it the two hundred dollars? Is it the four hundred dollars? Is it what you spent in vet care? Courts will give a nod to sentimental value, and so the heirloom value. So you can bring a little bit more. So that that's an aspect of animal law and, and you know property law that you asked me about. Interesting. So a couple could go to a shelter, a breeder. They choose to adopt this what's seen by the courts as a piece of property. We would see this as bringing another member into the family. And so if that couple were to split up, then the courts would decide whether the pet belonged to one more than the other or had more attachment to one or the other. Am I correct in thinking that? Sure. That, that they would look at that. Who paid the veterinary bills? Who paid for the food? Who took the dog to training? Things like that. Now, also, of course, in a dissolution of marriage, parties get to negotiate amongst themselves and a lot of times they'll come to a determination as to who should have the dog. Every other weekend with dad? It happens. Really? It happens, yes. <laughs> oh, that is so interesting. Well, and it, this doesn't even come up in a marital situation, but a lot of my practice, I have uh, people who have adopted a pet or acquired a pet when they're dating. The couple that moves in together? Yes, and then they end up splitting up. And then who gets that pet? And a lot of times one person will, under color of darkness <laughs> at night or something, sneak out and take that pet. And the other person is left panicked and upset. So they'll come to me and say, hey, this is the situation. You know, I adopted a dog with my ex-girlfriend, my ex-boyfriend. Now they've taken the animal. They won't let me see him. I don't know where he is. What can I do? 
And so I will bring a replevin action. That's what it's called. It's a replevin action. Replevin. That's a very fancy word. Very fancy. And uh, to try and get the dog back or the cat back. That's that's very, very common. And what the court always looks at in every single one of my cases is they look at things, the factors I mentioned a little while ago. Who will basically who's the dog microchipped to? Who's the cat microchipped to? Who pays vet bills? Who pays for the food? Who does the training? All of those things. So microchipping. Not all of our listeners may know what that is. Is that a mandatory thing? No, it's not mandatory for people in general. Shelters typically uh, microchip all of their animals. So if you're going to be adopting a pet from an animal shelter, always microchipped. Curious, what information goes on a microchip? Owner's address, owner's name, phone number, contact information. There are different services that produce microchips, and they may all have different nuances of information that they gather. But there are different ones, many, a multitude, because I've been involved with many different shelters, and they all use different ones that have different things, and some have yearly fees to maintain that microchip. Um, Some have a one-time fee. Sure. Yeah. So I think that that's actually a really good segue because we've talked about animals as property, animals in the family, but you also brought something to my attention that I didn't even know about until five minutes before our conversation, and that's the Illinois Humane Treatment of Animals Act. The Illinois Humane Care for Animals Care for Animals. And that's at 510 ILCS 70-1 and following. For those who don't know what that string of letters and numbers is, that's the citation to the statute. If you take those letters and numbers, plug them into Google, you can actually pull up the statute that we're talking about. But could you tell me about that act a little bit? Because I literally had never heard about it until 10 minutes before we started recording. Well, and that is so funny because it is is—it is actually my Bible. It is something really? that I've really spent so much time working on um, and working with in my practice. And also, um, you mentioned earlier that I was the executive director of the Hooved Animal Humane Society. And I did that for 10 years. Um, I just... Um, left. I still do some legal work for them, but I left them as a director um, December 31st of 2020. And one thing that all of the Haas people are very proud of is that Haas was the driving force behind the enactment of the Humane Care for Animals Act in 1973. 1973, all the way yep, back then. Right. And that act in Illinois, um, it is the model for statutes throughout the country. Oh, so other states have copied it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that is so cool. And um, the, the big thing for me with the Humane Care for Animals Act is that it allows for private citizens to become licensed through the Illinois Department of Agriculture as approved humane investigators. So what does that mean? What do those investigators do? What, well, it's very, very interesting, and it actually has helped a whole lot, thousands of animals, I would say. It allows that licensed person, the approved humane investigator, to investigate complaints of animal abuse and neglect. Well, that raises my next question, and I would hope that everybody knows you shouldn't torture an animals. We can only hope that people don't. Um, but what does that mean, abusing neglect? What, does, what do those words mean in the terms of the statute? Well, you have basic owner's duties. As, a, as an approved humane investigator, that's going to be the bulk of what you investigate. You'll receive a call either from Department of Agriculture or 
if your humane society receives calls to say, hey, there's a neighbor of mine, um, I, I don't think they're feeding their animals properly, or I see them not taking care of them, they're in a bad state, could you please investigate? And so then you would go out and you would investigate. And there are all sorts of rules. You're supposed to go during normal business hours, etc. There are elaborate Hence rules you have to follow. the licensing component. Yes, the licensing component. And there are many, many requirements that would allow you to sit and take the test to obtain your license. You have to be sponsored by a humane society. Uh, you need a veterinary reference. You need uh, to have a several years of experience with whatever species of animal that you're going to be investigating. But... The humane investigator is allowed to go out and investigate this basic owner's duties, typically, which are food and water, shelter, veterinary care when it's needed to prevent suffering, and a very broad category of humane care. And you go out, you investigate, and you are allowed to give a citation to someone who is violating any of these. It's a notice of violation, and by law... You can give them up to 48 hours to cure that violation. You can give them less. You can give them 24, whatever. Three has to be realistic, obviously, Mm. and reasonable. It can't just be 10 minutes. No, (laughs) no, because there are um, provisions for an emergency impoundment of animals, too, if there's a big emergency that you you find yourself dealing with. But typically, you can give them up to 48 hours if they do not cure you can't do anything about it yourself as an improved humane investigator, but that's when you get the big guns. That's when you get the police, the sheriff, state's attorneys, you get them, Department of Ag, to come in and they can impound. It's a serious thing. And impound just means take possession of the animal. Right, but you have to get um, authorization from an arm of government to do that. Otherwise, you're... Stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then someone on the other side comes after you with a replevin action. Exactly. Or a criminal action, you know, for, oh. you know, for theft. The state could come in. But you have to be very careful. And they, if anyone who's listening to this is interested, uh, the Illinois Department of Agriculture offers the licensing test to become an approved human investigator once a year, and it's in November. Oh, interesting, because we're recording this at the end of September, early October. So if anyone's interested... Hopefully this will be enough lead time for them to get into it. Right. And so you'd go on to the Illinois Department of Agriculture website, and they, they have just sent their letter out. I'm on the board of On Angels Wings uh, Pet Rescue in Crystal Lake, Illinois, and uh, I'm an investigator with them. I was an investigator through Hooved Animal Humane Society before. But you need sponsorship from a humane society to do that. So you'll want to talk to a local humane society that is doing that. So interesting. And... Dear listeners, you can find information about this on the Prime Law Podcast webpage. But another thing that you and I have in common is the fact that the area of animal law tends to intersect with the area of estate planning. Yes. But to give some of our newer listeners some context, episodes one, two, and three of this podcast dealt specifically with estate planning. So if you have any questions about wills and trusts and stuff, I'd refer you to those. But keeping things around the subject of animal law, there's something that you and I both have executed, which is a pet trust. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It is a very effective way to provide for your animals after your death, after your demise. And as I understand it, it's basically setting aside money to take care 
of a pet after you pass away, but the pet may outlive you. It is. I do have a pet trust you know, for mine. And um, we we are able to do this for people here at Prime, but it's it's good peace of mind for people, just so that you know that um, when you pass on, your animals you know, should be cared for properly. Indeed. Switching the topic a little bit, though, let's move away from happy, wonderful animals. Let's talk a little bit about dangerous animals. I'm sure you've run into that at some point. Oh, sure. That's a lot of my practice, actually, uh, centers around uh, representing dogs who I feel have been uh, falsely accused. Um, I get a lot of that. If you have an animal, and it's typically dogs, I haven't dealt uh, so much with other animals in this respect, but... Not too many dangerous squirrels in the world, I'm assuming? No, but yeah, you haven't tried to take their nuts, I suppose, <laughs> But... <laughs> Um, no, squirrels are cute. But with the dogs, most municipalities and counties, and certainly, you know, Illinois, we have ordinances and statutes that provide for, you know, dangerous dogs and what happens if your dog is declared dangerous or vicious. And some of these ramifications can lead to um, the dog being put down, you know, them being euthanized for such bad behavior. And I typically defend you know, people whose dogs have been accused of that if I feel it's, it's been you know, wrongly set upon them. And it involves hearings, and it's, it's just like a normal trial, actually. They start out in administrative court and just trying to show that that dog actually you know, is not dangerous, shouldn't suffer from this tag, because it goes forth and it t- carries a lot of um, requirements and things that people have to do. Sure. So... In your practice, how, how does one defend against a dog bite case? I mean, are there any scenarios where the dog would be justified, or, or how, how do you defend those? Well, that's a, a really good question. Most of the ordinances, or and also in the Illinois statute, they, it allows for a provocation defense. If somebody's provoking that dog, if something happened to that dog that provoked him reasonably, it's almost as if you have a reasonable dog standard. Oh, <laughs> Is interesting. That, it's, it's certainly not not uh, stated in there. But well, that's going to be the evaluation when you're in court. You know, and I would point out, hey, this person has a history with this dog. This you know person would poke the dog with sticks. The person would tease the animal. The person would do that. Is that provocation? The court will evaluate that. Um, to determine if there is provocation or justification that resulted in the Fascinating. Bite. Absolutely fascinating. Well, that's the dog side of things. I'm curious, is there anything on the human side of things? Well, I would tell you that almost every time I've had a case where I'm defending a dog who's been accused of being dangerous or vicious, the owners uh, find that they are sued civilly by the person who has been bitten by the dog. and Many times, home insurance will cover that, but if the person doesn't have insurance or if there's um, an exclusion and they're not covered, I've also represented them on that too, because that's, that is the dog bite, um, for lack of a better term, victim looking for money, looking for damages from the dog owner. That is so interesting, but that's all the questions I have for you here. Is there Anything you want to share with our listeners or you want to share with the world? The world, huh? Indeed, the world. Now, you know, I've been lucky enough in my practice to incorporate animal law. Um, it always was um, you know, caring for animals and the humane treatment, the um, you know, promotion of animal welfare was always very important to me. And I've just been really lucky enough in my career to have been able to 
do things to promote that. So wonderful. Well, if someone say had a dog bite case or a question about uh, becoming a licensed investigator, tell me how can they get in contact with you? They could contact me at Prime Law Group. That would be www.primelawgroup.com. One other thing I wanted to mention, too, when we talk about animal law, we would be remiss if we don't mention legislation. Please do. And um, through my work with the Humane Societies, and I'm also uh, the chair of the Animal Law Committee at the Chicago Bar Association, and we support or oppose uh, any kind of legislation um, depending on how it's going to affect animals. We support it if we think it's going to promote good welfare practices, and we oppose it if we think it isn't. So even as a private citizen, you can look up certain things and uh, with the legislature and see what's being proposed. So let me throw a question that we are totally unprepared for. Anything pending? Cruelty registries. Cruelty registries. What are those for? People who have been convicted of cruelty, and um, it's like a, a registry have a statewide registry of people. What are the consequences for someone on a registry? To not adopt, yeah. That's great. With that, then, we have reached the end of another episode of Prime Law Podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening, and thank you, Tracy, for being here. Thank you. And if there is any way that we can help you, please do not hesitate to give us a call. My guest, of course, is Tracy McGonigal, and I'm Andrew Mertzanich. We're both from Prime Law Group. This is Prime Law Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Congratulations, you've reached the disclaimer. This podcast is a production of Prime Law Group, LLC, who are attorneys licensed only in the state of Illinois. The primary purpose of this podcast is educational in nature and does not constitute legal advice of any kind. While we love that you are a regular listener, please note that no attorney-client relationship is created by you listening or acting upon anything you hear in this podcast. References to any specific product or service does not function as an endorsement or recommendation of the same. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. For more information, go to www.primelawgroup.com or now you can call 708-76-MYPOD.